Hey, we're back. Hope you're not sore. VegCast. That you had to wait for VegCast 104. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, uh, it has been a little bit since VegCast 103, but we are now back bringing you more vegetarian and vegan podcastery here on VegCast. And this time out, we are going to be talking about nutrition and specifically protein and a lot of misconceptions around the intake of protein that might be summarized in the frame The Protein Myth, which is a new book by David Irving. We'll be talking to him about uh, some of the misconceptions and about uh, some related issues around protein consumption, animal protein versus plant protein, and the general concept of uh, using animals versus using plants. Uh, We'll also have a science fact about the intelligence of pigeons. Yes, those animals that some people like to call winged rats, Uh, turn out to have a little higher mental capacities than had previously been thought. We'll also have a musical selection from a Philadelphia-area band that I enjoy called Me Without You. So that's all coming up, and I invite you to sit back, relax, and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver to you this 104th bench. All right. Well, some of you may be asking, shouldn't VegCast 104 have come out in December? And yes, it really should have. We had a guest uh, tentatively scheduled that did not wind up happening. And then I thought I might do a another Key West, Florida Keys, Southern Florida audio report. Uh, but it, as events turned out when we went down there for Christmas time, uh, we did not wind up in situations where I could get uh, good audio. So I wound up blowing that off and saying, you know, I'll just head on and do our January interview, which I specifically wanted to do in January because that's the time that people make resolutions about eating and trying to eat well. And then uh, by about this time, uh, near the end of January, they're finding out uh, that that was uh, a folly. That was crazy talk that uh, they can't eat healthy. Some people actually, of course, are succeeding, but it does bring the issue of nutrition and the components of nutrition to people's mind. And one of those components that we're constantly hearing about, those of us who are vegetarian or vegan, is protein. Where do you get your protein? We have previously played the song, Where Do You Get Your Protein? by Green Beings here on VegCast. And I'll add a link to that in our show notes in case you were not fortunate enough to listen to that podcast when it first came out. But somebody who actually knows a great deal about this and who was inspired by T. Colin Campbell's uh, The China Study, which goes into a great deal about uh, some of the debilitating effects of animal protein, is David Irving. He's written a book called The Protein Myth, and we are going to talk to him about that right now. All right, right now, on the phone with us is David Irving, the author of The Protein Myth, which is just out from O Books. It came out uh, late last year. David, welcome to VegCast. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Sure, thanks for being here. And um, the 
right now in January, a lot of people have uh, made resolutions about their health, about their eating, about uh, various aspects of their life, and uh, some of those people are now uh, looking at uh, the results and saying, you know, maybe I'll start that up next year. And I wanted to talk to you basically at this time because uh, your book does deal with a lot of the disinformation that people get about how to manage their health and why they may be getting uh, that disinformation. Uh, and one of those uh, aspects is protein. Your book is about much more than protein, but uh, let's let's just start there. What's the what's the main thing that people misunderstand about protein? Okay. Well, if I might just uh, add the subtitle to the book because that gives a lot of uh, meaning about the book. Yeah. And that's it's the protein myth, and then significantly reducing the risk of cancer, heart disease, stroke, and diabetes while saving the animals and building a better world. Right. That's so, your. That's basically almost like a, an introduction to the book. By the time you get through reading that subtitle. That's true. The the protein myth is is quite simply that we need these vast amounts of protein in order to stay healthy. And here in the Western world, when we think of protein, of course, we think of, of animal protein. If you want, I can break it, break it down, why it's, why it's a myth. Well, let's just, I, let's just talk about, um, was, uh, was the newest version of uh, the USDA food guide out at the point that you submitted this book, the My Plate thing? Because that, to me, seems like a perfect example where they, you know, they've, they've drawn this, this new visual icon, which is a plate, and uh, one of the spots on the plate just says protein, and it, it's a great uh, kind of a dog whistle uh, effect there where the USDA can say, well, we're just saying that you should have some protein, but given the, the context in which this is occurring, everybody who sees that, uh, I mean, everybody, the standard American who sees that just thinks, oh, well, that's some kind of meat I need there. Well, right. Uh, actually, I don't think that had come out when I started writing the book, but I, it, it's come out, I, I think that just came out within the last year. And the thing about that is, first of all, it's a protein, it's, a, it's an improvement over what they've had before. And like all of the, uh, all of the uh, healthcare organizations, they're getting better when they make their protein recommendations. They used to just say, eat, uh, you know, two or three servings of uh, red meat a day or, and two, two or three servings of dairy, and now they've improved that, so they say, if you're going to eat meat, eat lean meat, and they say, for dairy, eat no-fat or low-fat products, and that's an, an improvement, but they haven't really got to the point where they really need to get to, and that's to recommend no animal protein whatsoever. And so they're, they're just being kind of vague there. It, it is an improvement. Right. You've kind of established how people think of protein and why, uh, why if, if you can in a nutshell, why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong because it's, uh, it's unhealthy, <laughs> and it can lead us into getting some, uh, some very bad diseases, heart disease and stroke and uh, various cancers. The main thing is they... They they think they need to consume much more than they need to, and they think it has to consist of animal protein, and it doesn't. As long as people get one of the, some of the basis, basic starches in their diet, like wheat, corn, rice, potatoes, or beans, they don't have to eat animal protein at all. And they people think they need these huge amounts of protein. I mean, the average 
uh, is about 70 grams of protein that people consume a day. That comes to about, in terms of meat, about 8 ounces of meat. And really, uh, like according to the World Health Organization, for example, women only need 29 grams uh, a day. And that's, uh, you know, uh, that's less than half of what, what people are getting. Right. For women and men need only, you know, a little bit more than that, 37.5 grams, actually. Let's just kind of widen the scope a little. Uh, and can you talk a little about how these notions got into people's heads that, uh, you know, how people came away with this kind of distorted concept of needing to have these these animal foods in their diet? Well, it goes all the way back to the back to the 19th century when the amount of protein we need was first established. And this, this was set by a, a physiologist by the name of Carl Voigt. And he was teaching at the University of Munich, and he he decided that we needed 118 grams of protein a day. Wow. That comes to about uh, 13, 14 ounces of meat. And the reason he decided that, very unscientific, he observed that uh, laborers, that's how much they consumed. And they were big, strong guys, and so he said, well, that's how much protein people need, and they're getting the right amount because they can afford to buy whatever they want. So they'll just naturally gravitate to the right amount. Right. That's how it got set. And, you know, very unscientific. That's how the whole thing started. A guy by the name of uh, Wilbur Owen Atwater went to study with Voigt, and he brought his ideas back to America. And he became the head of the very first nutrition laboratory in the United States. It was called the Office of Experiment Stations, and it was under the auspices of the United States Department of Agriculture. And uh, so he, he lifted uh, Voigt's standard even higher. And then another uh, fellow, a fellow by the name of Chittenden, he came along and he said, that's too much protein because protein circulates in the body, in the bloodstream. It doesn't get stored. It causes all kinds of damage to the liver and the kidneys. And he didn't know what we know today that it causes a lot more damage than that. It can cause cancer and heart disease and diabetes and, and all this. But anyway, he tried to get it all the way down to uh, uh, what it should be, all the way down to 30 grams, but uh, nobody listened to him. Finally, uh, around the start of the Second World War, Roosevelt established some nutrition commissions, and they lowered it down to 60 grams for women and 70 grams for men. Now, 70 grams, that's about what we most people consume today. That's the average. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, National Academy of Sciences, however, now has lowered it down to about 44 grams for women and 56 grams for men. But the World Health Organization, they say, no, women need only 29 grams and men need only 37.5. And this is about what Chittenden discovered way back in the, at the first part of the 20th century. Okay, but as as we uh, as we know, there uh, the USDA has a kind of a problematic mission to uh, both promote the agriculture industry and regulate it at the same time, and that that's led to a lot of wacky things like the uh, the four food groups, which uh, you mentioned uh, in the book. Uh, also, the whole National Institutes of Health thing. I wanted to get into um, the T. Colin Campbell aspect because uh, the China study was a big. Uh, had a big 
effect within our community anyway in terms of uh, delivering a, uh, a raft of scientific data that Campbell had either participated in or gathered from other sources and really made that case. And you uh, devote like one chapter to just introducing him in the China study. Um, so it, can you give us an overview of what, uh, you know, what you got from the China study or from uh, T. Colin Campbell and how that may have uh, affected your writing the book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that was, that was one of the uh, main impetuses uh, for writing uh, my book. He did a, the most comprehensive population study he and his research time ever undertaken any place in the, in the whole world. It encompassed 96% of the entire population of China. And that, those studies showed conclusively that animal protein is linked to the killer diseases, you know, that we've been talking about here. And so that was the main focus of my study, and it also tr tied in directly with my concerns for animal rights issues, because prior to that time, you know, I, I've been a vegan for a long time, since about 1985 or 1986, and uh, I always knew that, uh, that uh, it's, as most people do, that it's more healthy to be, become a vegan. But I didn't know uh, these kinds of things, that it could be linked so directly to getting these killer diseases. And so when I found, found that out, not only uh, was it uh, a reason for me to try to convey this, help get this information out to help uh, people, but also animals at the same time. Because if people realize how dangerous animal protein is, they're going to stop eating less animals, and this is going to help protect the animal population at the same time. Right. Well, that brings me uh, to the next thing I was going to bring up, which is a, a sticky issue with T. Colin Campbell in that uh, much of his early research was don done on animals, and you spend a good amount of time in this book uh, kind of lambasting uh, the, the various institutions of animal research uh, that are out there. The main point being that, you know, most animal research seems to be uh, not very well overseen and uh, may not actually be necessary. But, of course, the animal researchers will say, well, if we hadn't done this, then we wouldn't have arrived at this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to refute that because it's a counterfactual. But with T. Cole and Campbell, we have a situation where early animal studies, and you cite one of them, uh, you know, actually led him to start thinking this way and then to follow up with an epidemiological study uh, on the on the people, which where we got a much uh, stronger uh, bit of data than than in the animal studies. But how do you, you know, it's always hard for me to to say, well, uh, let's let's cite Colin Campbell because he's citing all these studies, and then but he personally has no qualms about citing animal studies. So how how do we uh, <laughs> kind of tease that apart? No, that's that's a, that's a very good point. And, and a very valid point. And it, it, it's, it's one I asked myself, too, and, uh, in writing the book. And uh, I've answered the question for myself in very practical terms. And that's simply uh, the, the objective is to help the animals. Now, Campbell, when he, when he started doing those early studies, which were done on, on mice, and that's where he that's where he first discovered um, 
the dangers of animal protein because of, of the way of the cancer it produced in mice. But my view of it now is what's done is done. So if what, what has happened can be used to the advantage of animals, then I think it should be taken and used. But I don't encourage any more animal research. I'm, I'm totally against it. It does seem like a lot of that is just inertia at that at this point. Or you even suggest it's just, for some people, it's a way to continue getting grant money to do things that are, you know, can't even really be defended as by on any logical basis, much less an ethical basis. No, no, that that that's true. I mean, the 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 the, the animal research project projects that are done, so many of them are just curiosity based, and uh, uh, just let me say, go back just a second and say that the 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 bulk of the evidence in my book from coming from Campbell's side is non-animal research based. Right. Um, getting back to the other point, yes, all this research they're done is. A lot of it is replication research. They're just repeating the same old experiments over. They're doing ridiculous, absurd curiosity research. Like they'll do do studies, for example, to show that uh, female rats enjoy sex. You know, I mean, <laughs> that, that that might be satisfy someone's curiosity. Yeah, but that's not legitimate animal research. That's just trying to satisfy their curiosity and getting money from the public to do it. Right, and then they do all this addiction research, and this is, I mean, as about as immoral as you can get, as far as I'm concerned. And it's a large bulk of getting money, and that's for uh, for tobacco and alcohol and drug addictions. Now, why should animals pay the price for conditions that human beings have created for themselves? You know, it's just yeah. unethical. And our universities, which pride themselves on being these ethical institutions, uh, they should be able to see that. And they don't see it because if they did see it, they wouldn't get all the money that they're getting from, uh, you know, about $20 billion a year or so from the National Institutes of Health. Right. Well, just uh, I wanted to close with an item ripped from today's headlines, or from last week's anyway, uh, which is Paula Dean announcing that she's had diabetes for three years. She's known about it. She's continued to uh, push foods and to promote foods that she knew were not particularly healthy for people with diabetes, that uh, supposedly she was not even eating the food that she was putting on uh, television and suggesting people eat. And uh, and this is actually, I think, caused uh, some mainstream people to start looking at this issue uh, of connecting certain foods with diseases like diabetes uh, in a way that that, that previously they, they hadn't. I wondered if you had been following that and if you had any comment on that, how that kind of ties in with the, the protein myth and other myths that were, uh, that were saddled with. Well, I, I, I haven't. I, I'm aware of it, and I heard a brief uh, interview segment. Uh, of course, she, she has to answer to herself for doing that, but not only does she have to answer herself, she has to answer to the public that was affected by that. I think it's it's good news. What you suggested is that that does help get this information out there about the the dangers of uh, consuming animal foods in relation to diabetes. Well, all right, uh, we're about done now. Just uh, you 
you were inspired by the China study, among other things. You wrote this book that uh, starts off with protein and it kind of uh, spirals out into a whole uh, indictment of our, our way of eating based on uh, animal foods, and uh, it has a lot of great information, a lot of great resources, uh, citing sources and so forth. Uh, it seems pretty comprehensive, and that begs the question, are you, are you going to do something else in this vein, or do you consider, now that I did the protein myth, I'm out of there? Oh, no, I'm not out of it uh, at all. I, I'm a committed animal rights person. In fact, I, I'm just uh, finishing up a book now, and uh, uh, the title of it is The Smartest, Most Cruel People the World Has Ever Known, Animal <laughs> Research from Aristotle to the 21st Century. Ah, okay. That, that presents some very, very interesting ideas. It go, goes all the way right back to the beginning of human history and traces it and, and tries to follow this path on how we got to where we're at today. All right. Uh, we will look forward to that and uh, keep track of your uh, various activities. David Irving, uh, the book is The Protein Myth. It's from O Books. And David, thanks for uh, talking about it and uh, the related issues with us on VegCast today. Thanks for having me, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, great. Through mostly vacant streets, a baker from the outskirts of his town Earned his living peddling sweets from a ragged cart he dragged around The clever fox crept close behind, kept an ever-watchful eye For a chance to steal a ginger spice cake or a boysenberry pie down was the hungry crow when the time is right i'll strike and condescend to the earth below and take whichever treat i like the moment the baker turned around to shoo the fox off from his cart the crow swooped down and snatched a shortbread cookie and a german chocolate tart using most unfriendly words that the village children had not yet heard the baker shouted threats by canzanet to curse the crafty you rotten wooden mixing spoon Why you midnight winged raccoon You better bring those pastries back You no good burnt black macaroon The fox approached the tree Where the bird was perched Delighted in his nest Brother Crow, don't you remember me? It's your old friend Fox with a humble request That you could share just a modest piece Seeing as I distracted that awful man This failed to persuade the crow in the least So the fox rethought his plan And if your lovely song would grace my ears Or to even hear you speak Would ease my pains and fears The crow looked down where the candy in his beak Your poems of wisdom, my good crow what a paradise they bring This flattery pleased the proud bird so He opened his mouth and began to sing Your subtle acclamation's true Best to give praise where praise is due Every rook and jay in the core of the day's been raving about me too They admire me one and all Must be the passion in my car My slender bill known through the escadrille My fierce commanding claw
Crashed graham cracker crushed my powder sugar Funnel cake cocaine Let the crescent cookie rise These carrot covered almond eyes Would rest to see my cashew princess In the swirling marble sky Will rest upon the knee Where all the visions cease to be A root beer float in our banana boat Across the tapioca sea When letting all the tangents go Is the only prayer we know May it be so, may it be so, may it be so That is Me Without You, a band based here in Philadelphia, of which I know that at least one member is at least vegetarian, uh, possibly vegan. I haven't checked on him in uh, the months since I first uh, contacted him about playing a song of theirs on VegCast. When I was planning a December VegCast, I was going to use a different song that had a, a Christmas theme to it. Uh, but uh, since he said, go ahead and play any of the songs, figured for January we would concentrate on one that had to do with uh, the choice of eating healthy or unhealthy. In this story, you can notice that uh, the fox and the crow are wrangling over what we would consider unhealthy foods. So that kind of ties in with the whole New Year's resolution theme, and it provides a segue, uh, given that the main character, one of the main characters, there is a crow, to uh, talking about birds and the intelligence thereof as we move into our science. Our science fact for VegCast 104, pigeons can learn higher math. Study finds. This is a study from the University of Otago in New Zealand. It's written up in the New York Times. And the article says pigeons have now shown that they can learn abstract rules about numbers, an ability that until now has been demonstrated only in primates. In the 1990s, scientists trained rhesus monkeys to look at groups of items on a screen and to rank them from the lowest number of items to the highest. They learned to rank groups of one, two, and three items in various sizes and shapes. When tested, they were able to do the task even when unfamiliar numbers of things were introduced. In other words, having learned that two was more than one and three more than two, they could also figure out that five was more than two or eight more than six. Damien Scarf, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Otago, New Zealand, tried the same experiment with pigeons, and he and two colleagues report in the current issue of the journal Science that the pigeons did just as well as the monkeys. Elizabeth Brannan, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University and one of the scientists who did the original experiments with monkeys, was impressed by the new results. Their performance looks just like the monkeys, she said. Score one for the birds, the article continues. The pigeons had learned an abstract rule, peck images on a screen in order, lower numbers to higher. It may have taken a year of training with different shapes, sizes, and colors of items, always in groups of one, two, or three, but all that work paid off when it was time for higher math. Given groups of six and nine, they could pick or peck the images in the right order. This is one more bit of evidence of how smart birds really are. And I would only add one more bit of evidence 
of how not smart it has been of the human population to ascribe a lower intelligence to animals based on our lack of data on their intelligence and our wishful thinking that non-human animals are some kind of automatons that act on instinct rather than the superior intellect that only we humans can possess. And uh, I think that it's obvious why we think that way. I'm not going to belabor it. I'm just going to point out that this is one more piece of data in a big picture showing that humans should stop listening to their stomachs and instead listen to the science fact. Okay, we are nearing the end of VegCast 104, but just a couple of quick items for you. I don't know if there are many or any Philadelphia vegans or Philadelphia area vegans who listen to VegCast and have not yet discovered the joys and pleasures of my Philadelphia Daily News column, V for Veg, which runs every other Thursday in the food section. But if not, if there is somebody who is not hep to that, I want to be sure to let everybody know that we've started a couple of image galleries, slideshows on philly.com there in conjunction with V for Veg, uh, where listeners and readers are invited to send in a snapshot of any sign that you find around Philadelphia and environs saying vegan or vegetarian. We're trying to get more of those vegan signs in. If you happen to see those, send those in. Vegetarian so far is outpacing vegan, which I guess is natural since there are uh, likely more instances of that. We'll take those as well. Vegetarian or vegan, if you know of something in your neighborhood that people might not know about where there is vegan food available, even if it's just one item, if they advertise it out on the uh, sidewalk or on the window or anywhere that you can see from outside, uh, just take a snapshot and uh, go to philly.com slash v for veg and you'll see those slideshows. And you can send that in, uh, have your name attached to it or not as you prefer, but definitely add to the growing awareness of vegan and vegetarian food around here. And maybe uh, somebody else will start this in other places. We'll have a whole rich image database of uh, vegan and vegetarian options. But the other thing I wanted to be sure to let you know of, uh, I'm always trying to update my little uh, listing on the main page at VegCast.com of other vegan-oriented podcasts. Uh, and that's something that we started back when VegCast started in uh, July of 2005, and it was very easy at that point. Uh, I think Eric's Diner and Vegan Freak and uh, Colleen uh, Patrick Goudreau's Vegetarian Food for Thought were the only things I had to list, and then over time uh, I would become aware of other ones and try to get those listed. I've fallen way behind at this point and uh, am planning to do an update along with this podcast, so it should be relatively up-to-date. But uh, now you need not depend on the VegCast homepage for your vegan podcast listings because there is a site called Vegan 
feed.com that a fellow a correspondent named Ben has started, and uh, he let me know about it, and I want to point you all there. It's uh, very well put together and has the latest of many, many different vegan podcasts, some that I was still unaware of and will be needing to check out. But uh, in the meantime, you can go there and check those out. You'll find VegCast along with many other vegan podcasts in uh, various kind of thematic uh, orientations or uh, different niches within the area of vegan podcastry, which has really taken off in the six years since we got going here. And so I wanted to recommend Vegan Feed, and I hope you'll, you'll check that out. In the meantime, we are getting out of here. That is VegCast 104. I want to thank my guest, David Irving, for talking to us about the protein myth. I also want to thank Aaron from Me Without You for giving us permission to play the band's music on VegCast. They have a new album that should be out any moment, and we're all very excited about that. I also want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and or subscribing to VegCast. Remember, you can always subscribe at iTunes, and we encourage that. February VegCast will be out very soon. Until that time, please get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.